0: This episode is sponsored by Roofstock on Chain. Money is changing. So, where do we go from here? Join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for their best of the Money Reimagined podcast. And just a reminder Coindesk is a news source and does not
1: provide investment advice. And now, Sheila Warren. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. This year we had the privilege of speaking to so many guests and for this best of episode, I wanna highlight an episode that really stuck with me long after we recorded it. The title of the episode was Decentralized Systems Identity and Owning Your Own Data. And we had on Daniel Buckner and Chinati uh, to talk about these systems of identity and focus specifically on what does it mean in our digital age to represent yourself online? I think so many interesting things came up here about our guests and Michael and my own personal experiences with identity, how that shapes and frames the way we think about these decentralized systems, and what it means when we don't actually own or control our own data and our own representation in an online space. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did.
2: Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined, I'm Michael Casey. Today, Sheila and I are coming to you from San Francisco, where stablecoin provider Circle is holding its Converge conference. From the event's impressive speaker list, we decided to grab two that we think should make for an interesting pairing. The first is Daniel Buckner of Block. Dan has been in the digital identity space for some time, where he grapples with one of the thorniest and most important challenges for onboarding people into decentralized systems, that of identity. The other is Chi Nadi, who is the CEO of Mara a crypto finance ecosystem for Africa, including an exchange, educational services, and other features. As many listeners to this pod would know, we've taken a deep interest in addressing the challenges that folks in developing countries face around identity and verification. So there should be a pretty good intersection of interests here, Sheila. And hi, by the way, this is like, we're great. We're together again. This is- It's
0: becoming a regular thing. I'm not sure what to make of it, Michael. I feel like I'm just following me around a bit. You know, look, I'm I'm really excited for this episode. We haven't done an episode on identity in a little while. And of course, it is such a critical part, not only of the tech stack, but of the ecosystem. And when we talk about inclusion and adoption, identity is one of the barriers to entrance into this ecosystem that is quite critical. Uh, And certainly without identifying it specifically, a lot of the regulation and policy work happening in the space right now is about the idea of how and when do you need to be able to identify participants in a transaction or an exchange? And to what extent do pre-existing rules need to, or ought to, or should they even apply in the new context that we're all building? So um, I'm super excited to, to get to our guests and, and learn a bit more today too.
2: Well, let's get to it then. Dan, why don't we just throw it to you? Because I think you know, there's, some, there's been a lot of development in this space over the years, and you've been involved in it for some time. Standards like the DID standard that have been developed to sort of get to this idea of how do we create self-sovereign identities, identities that are actually any systems, I suppose, that are ultimately uh, viable for the digital age. So just tell us a little bit about what you work and, and what we're talking about here in particular when we talk about digital identity.
3: Yeah. Thanks for having me. The ecosystem has definitely grown up over the last you know, six to seven years, starting uh, with rebooting web of trust that was held by uh, Christopher Allen you know, in, the mid, in the mid-teens. That was sort of the formative stage of getting towards motion of a decentralized identifier standard, which is sort of the core right? If you don't own your own IDs online, uh, you really don't own anything that they're based on. So, you know, things like Twitter, right? Like you don't own your ID, they they can take it from you. So that was sort of the initial building block that was started up. And that has since been standardized through W3C, the same standards body that standardizes all the web technology you see in your browser today. And then there's the other pillar that was uh, kind of developed in parallel, which is verifiable credentials. And that's the ability to sort of make these trusted reputational proofs. Based on decentralized identifiers, and together those give you the ability to do things like, you know, reputation-based exchanges. If it's value for service, if regulations apply, you might have things like KYC, IML that that are formulated in that manner. Um, but they can broadly apply to any of these systems. Um, in terms of what I'm doing at Block, you know, we had the I had the opportunity to build a lot of the foundational stuff at, at Microsoft, and Block really sort of wants to take the last mile um, and, and really bring it to the consumer. And I think that's A big part of that is the personal data store stuff, uh, owning your own data. When you pair that with decentralized identifiers, you can start building some really robust, decentralized apps and exchange capabilities. And I I see that as sort of the last pillar that we need to stand up. So that's chiefly what I do right now at Block is is kind of working on building that out.
0: So Dan, could you talk to us a bit? Because you you were at Microsoft and now you're at Block. And so the frame just kind of on Web 2 versus Web 3, or I suppose Web 5, as Jack would say, do we think about identity differently in those contexts? Because in Web 2, of course, what you're trying to do is prove to Microsoft or whomever right, that you are who you say you are and there's liability they have for that and whatnot. In Web 3, at least in theory, the liability holds to the other participant, right? So in a peer-to-peer exchange without a centralized body that needs to have that independent verification, how do we think about identity and, and what's the frame that you use to think about this in the new context?
3: Yeah. So, so identity kind of comes up in, in Web2 context and in ways consumers will see today all the time. You know When you, um, when you log in with your Google account or Facebook, they're going to have this connect screen that comes up and say, hey, do you want to authorize this app to know your email, for instance? That is an identity exchange. The identifier happens to be an email address usually, and your password, or you know, in, now I guess with Passkey and some of the other new standards, um, those things are your, your ability to say that I own that identifier. At the end of the day, you don't, right? The, that system does. Um, So, the the biggest difference with these systems is that you have control over those identifiers. Like in in a decentralized identifier network, you are the one who actually ultimately controls it. No one can delete it or erase it or shut down that account. So how it plays into these new and emerging systems is that uh, it's interesting in the sense that no one's going to assert who you are, so you kind of have to build reputational proofs. So if Alice is doing business with Bob or maybe an exchange or something of that nature, she might have had to acquire verifiable credentials that might tie an identifier or or her activities to certain proofs that those counterparties are interested in. If it's purely peer-to-peer, it might be something reputational. It might be, you know, Bob knows Carol. And because Carol has given Alice a credential saying, hey, I've done some, you know, I've done some business with her. She seems pretty reputable. um, Bob might trust that, right? In other regulated contexts, it's much more specific where banks would say, no, you, you have to have some sort of provable assertion tied to you, that's, you know, fits these very rigid requirements, right? AML, KYC, or, you know, something like that nature. So I think it still comes into play. It's very different, manifest through just peer-to-peer versus, you know, a peer-to-regulated industry. And that's something that we're kind of trying to do with TBDEX, which is sort of an application of these three pillars I talked about to make it possible to do exchanges with potentially banks or others that are regulated. So that you could pre- present credentials to them instead of regurgitating your AML KYC information all over the place. Instead of it being very privacy destroying process, like try to comply with some of those regulations if you need to, as best as possible while preserving privacy. And I think that's sort of like the, you know, that's the balance that you have to strike.
2: Yeah, like it's the number the issue. I mean, the, the, resolving that challenge is just so important to whether or not we can move this space forward. As far as I'm concerned, because that regulation is not going away, and and. You know, Chi, maybe you can talk a little bit about, like, first of all, what you're doing in terms of your regulatory framework. And then maybe we we'll just start talking a little bit about the, uh, you know, I listening to Dan here talking about building reputations online and so forth, not necessarily something that is accessible to a digitally excluded, let alone financially excluded community. So we can dive into that. But first of all, yeah, tell us a bit about Mara and, you know, how the regulatory challenges that you have to deal with uh, are being dealt with. Sure. Uh, so Mara is a digital finance ecosystem uh,
4: bringing crypto to Africa. We have this dream vision goal to make sure that every African owns this generational assets of Bitcoin, Ethereum and, and the like. That initially starts with a, with a retail wallet you know, that's targeting, like, like you were saying, uh, Michael, the, the mass market. But in Africa, there aren't any VASP regulations yet, but there is VASP regulations in the UK. And so what we are doing is being regulated out of the UK and so the, the KYC standards of the FCA are what our users are going through in Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya. Those are the markets that we initially launch in. One thing that's interesting is that you know people think of Africa as a as a monolith, but there are different attitudes towards data privacy in different countries. Like Kenya, for example, champions data privacy. What I find fascinating, uh, Daniel, by what you just shared specifically regulatory validation and peer to peer validation, I find it super interesting because. In many ways, peer-to-peer validation is how trust actually exists. If you're thinking about the last mile, if you're thinking about folks that are unbanked, maybe have bank accounts and haven't been to them in months or years, peer-to-peer verification is natural. It's what is happening in a community. Previous project I, I worked on, which was through my nonprofit, Sustainability International, and a project called CELA, we were in the last mile in the Niger Delta and trying to figure out, okay, so you've got local female farmers and you've got Actually, ex militants submitting data into uh, it was actually a stellar blockchain. How do you identify these folks? Now, this is 2017, 2018. We're really trying to hack and try to figure out how to do this. And what you realize is that because trust is local, you start thinking about ways of verifying folks through their peers. Just in the same way, you can't even go into those communities unless you have that peer to peer verification. You can't get information out of it unless you have that peer to peer verification. But in the same way, you're, when you're looking for someone you can trust, you always find it through a network of people. And so I I just wanted to express that because it's one of the reasons why I got into crypto, because if you look at last mile in Africa in 2012, 2013, as social media was starting, you're still quite invisible from the world. And uh, it takes a lot of time to find said verified, trusted person. An example of one of the ways that we tinkered with thinking about, okay, how do you send value uh, to folks that are in the last mile where perhaps one of them out of four has a, has a smartphone, but most of them have feature phones. So one, you think about how do you build smart contracts for feature phones? Then you think, oh, perhaps people have to have shared wallet keys, so that I know you, you're my uncle, you're my brother, and we'll all share this together. You also have to think about literacy as well, which to be frank is something that we dealt with in our, in our pilots where we were using regular wallets that involved uh, writing a password and We found out that half of uh, the female farmers that we're working with were illiterate. We didn't know until we started actually deploying with them. I'm not presenting any solutions. I'm just presenting the the challenge when you actually really face it. But then even if you look at Nigeria, so that's the last mile in Nigeria, right? Um, Nigeria's got a population of over 200 million people. Someone in the Niger Delta is miles away from someone in Lagos. In fact, the Gulf there is probably greater than someone in Lagos and someone in New York City between those two, which is an important point because most Nigerians have bank accounts. So we have a BVN number, which is the institutional validation. And so in the current regulatory regime, whether it's fintech or whether it's crypto, you're using, you know, and that allows you to, to address the majority of the TAM. But if we want to achieve our vision of having a whole generation of Africa owning Bitcoin, we've got to figure out that last mile piece. Now, obviously we're just starting, so we're not quite innovating on it there yet. But having done it previously, I am aware of the challenges and I'm excited about what Block is trying to do because there is a real need there in thinking about how you do it. One last thing I want to add that I want to say before about Kenya. Kenya really prioritizes data ownership and privacy. That was interesting, Kenya has M-Pesa. And so you can just come into Kenya with your passport and your phone and you're ready to go. You don't have to take money out of the bank account, right? You register with the phone number you know, the Kenya recognizes that all of the data is being held by one company, right? But because these things are quite important, the community in Kenya is really looking at how they can create decentralized ownership of data and privacy.
0: So, you know, too, there's so much there to unpack. And I think in addition to uh, your point that Africa is hardly a monolith as a continent, where you've got a massive diversity of experiences, opportunities, cultural norms around things like privacy or even financial services, but it's also, there's this, I think there's a Western assumption that somehow people are just, I don't know what they think is happening, not engaging in exchanges of value, not engaging in financial services. And of course, they are every single day, all the time. Some of that is falling outside of the traditional banking system, depending on where you are. But it's not to say that there's not a very robust and rich network, to your point, of peer-to-peer engagements already happening. And so I often think about frontier economies, you know, there's this, there's this joke in, um, in Boston that They just watched where the cow, like the reason that the traffic patterns in Boston are so crazy is because they watched where the cows wandered and just kind of like put the roads where the cow paths were, right? And so similarly, what I love about Web3 and identity is that it's a chance to pattern match and to say there are, instead of identity being this linear, you know, uh, verification that you kind of do in sort of a very linear format, you have a chance to think more about that web, that network of relationships that actually serves as verification or validation or or gives you credibility. And think about how do we create a technical, you know, object, if you will, that kind of understands that that is how the world actually works, right? A story I tell a lot is um, when I was in the hospital giving birth to my first child, someone stole my credentials, my identity. And then I got back from the hospital and there were a bunch of surprise bank accounts that had been opened up. And my first reaction to the hassle of all of that, of course, was very upsetting and all that. But my first reaction to that was, oh my goodness, you know, the most important thing now is I have a daughter, my first kid. And like, what if somebody were able to claim to be me with relationship to her? Right. That was such a more primal, foundational, important relationship than my relationship to my bank, for example. When you think about the ways that a lot of networks operate in countries that have been excluded from legacy financial and even legacy tech in some fashions, it is a lot, even communities in the United States it is very much about that kind of trust that comes from being known and seen. My point being, I, I find it very interesting. And I think it's a challenge to all of us to think about how do we acknowledge the richness of that kind of lived experience? And, and is it appropriate even for us to translate that into something? Or, which is a concern I have, are we going to try to kind of force everything into this much more linear sort of model where you know you get verified and, you, and you're kind of like, you take that from place to place, but you lose kind of the richness of that community that is providing and amplifying your identity. So I don't know, you know, let respond to that if either of you, but it's something that I, I think is, it's a very cultural oriented perspective on some of these questions, but identity is such a personal thing. And it isn't just, I want to be able to hold money somewhere and then pull that money out, right? That's one kind of model. It's, I want someone to know that the data I'm putting into a system comes from me and that has value because I am me. I am Michael Casey, journalist, I am Sheila, you know, whatever it is, right? Like I'm, I am who we are and that's a different thing. So I don't know how, maybe it blocked you. Is this discussions you have? How do you think about this?
3: Yeah, I mean, we definitely talk about, you know, what peer to peer identity is like well, not more natural or organic identity versus something that is um, governmentally imposed, uh, which typically is the more linear fashion. I I do hope that we get to, you know, the technology can go either way, it could be used for either one. I certainly hope it's used for the more peer-to-peer and community-driven one in the future, because I think that that one is more conducive to preserving privacy and and all sorts of things that are beneficial um, versus sort of doubling down on a lot of the, you know, honestly, I mean, we all know that KYC AML in in many respects fails uh, its intended outcomes, right? Um, These are well-known statistics, demonstrably so. So, So it's not like they're very effective and I don't think that's some secret, right? So we could have better reputational type proofs if we sort of embrace, like you were saying, just really the opportunity to not just paper over with digital systems like current systems, but actually kind of go around that. And so we we do think in those terms, like uh, about supporting both because you have to, right? Support support what's required by law. We're a regulated institution, we're a publicly traded company, but also making it possible for peers to do exchanges. Based on accrued reputational proof, so we're we're trying to make sure that the tech is there to support both use cases and and uh, in, empower everyone across the ecosystem with it. Um, and then, you know, maybe that's a perspective that gets me in a little bit of trouble or something with you know certain people who take a very purist perspective to like, hey, I will never do business with a regulated institution that has to abide by those things. And I guess I would say that's totally your choice. I certainly would never want to force someone to. I don't necessarily love it as well, but you know, it's it's um it's the reality, right? Like, there's banks, there's people who have money in them. We probably want to connect these people to these better financial assets. And so that's our goal. And at the end of the day, if we can convince the powers that be that we have something better,
0: then, you know, that's to be seen. Web3 is magic. In a world where you can buy apes and punks instantly, is real estate the next step? Roofstock OnChain has pioneered the ability to buy homes instantaneously using Web3 technology while opening up new financing options with DeFi. Follow the white rabbit. Find us at onchain.roofstock.com. That's onchain.roofstock.com.
2: I do want to get into the powers that be, and we're going to go back to the regulatory conversation in a moment to see whether or not there is any scope for taking some of these new ideas and getting a more imaginative solution at the policy level. But maybe Dan, just to follow up a little bit, I'd like to just maybe if you can a- address specifically some of the challenges that, that she was talking about, right? So because peer-to-peer is one thing, if it's it, peer-to-peer digital, I can see how that immediately does create this, this record, this, this rich pool of information from which you can draw some form of reputation and then create an identity around that. But we're talking about an analog environment, people who are not literate, and is there a way to map? Have you thought about that mapping from these village-like environments of trust into a digital environment could then actually be be used or not?
3: Yeah. So actually, you know, we're at formative phases with you know the TBDex work that we're doing. So we haven't you know done any real on the ground analysis in terms of like the very difficult situations you're talking about. But at Microsoft, I did. Um, so you know, I was working with bodies like the U- you know certain aspects of the UN and others on problems uh, that were exactly that. You know, we were trying to understand these refugees in camps. Um, they would, some, some of them would stay there. I mean, I, most extreme case, like decades, uh, which is incredible, but they would not be accruing any identity or reputation or anything. And, and they were, like you're saying, like, you know, some of them couldn't read or write, you know, just a whole you know, spectrum there. And so some of the solutions, like they can't self-custody, like they have no way to do these things. And they don't want to just walk out of the camp after five years with no reputation, because then you're, you're literally starting from zero again. I and mean, can you imagine that after yeah. you know, a decade and start from zero? So some of the ideas were, you know, hey, you have people who run the camps that you know, provide food and stuff like that, and they're kind of monitoring these changes. There's little marketplaces that occur in these camps and can help arbitrate and say, hey, you know, this reputation proof is signed off by a delegate of the UN or a delegate of this aid agency, nonprofit. And so those sort of can be injections of trust and, and observation and like kind of unbiased third parties mm-hmm. who are trying to help them form that and then form also custodial relationships where, you know, if they need to do a transaction, it could be something the person has plus the recognition of one of those custodians in the most extreme cases. So I don't know that there is a great solution. Mm-hmm. There are certainly only trade-offs and, and maybe passable ones.
4: Um, it's, it's not a greatly solved problem. Yeah. I just want to build off of that because I just, it's funny how memory works. That's exactly what we were designing in the Niger Delta, because we were realizing that the nodes of trust were these local NGOs. Not only are they the nodes of trust, by surfacing them into nodes of trust and making them points of custody or points of reputational, like the central node to build out reputation from, you actually end up repillarizing society because you make them more important. And that's really, really, really valuable in a society where there are weak institutions because then you strengthen those institutions. And those are the institutions that uh, value should flow to because they have the highest level of, uh, of knowledge of the local environment and such and such. So I, I just want to plus one that, that that's not only a great strategy, but uh, allows you to surface sort of that, uh, that local flavor and that, that local knowledge. I want to share one, one quick thing. We were doing a hackathon last week, which was kind of porting over what we had been doing in Niger Delta into Kenya with the, with the Maasai and the Maasai Mara, because you have problems with, this is where identity comes in. Capital is supposed to go to a community, and then it goes to the leader of the community, and then it never gets to the individuals. And our hackathon was essentially we had 200 kids uh, who applied and, and we picked, you know, we selected um, the top 20 and they built solutions to make sure that each and every individual family could get their payments directly to them. Now, the benefit of doing it in Kenya is that you have M-Pesa. So you do have a centralized source of identity, which does help. But if you think about expanding that, you're going to need some way of creating networks of identity in order to, to, to expand the, just even the ability to, to get capital. I didn't want to get us off the topic of identity and value transfer, um, but you can also attach identity, I just, I just wanted to touch upon this, to, uh, to land registry as well. Um, so Kenya is one of the first countries in Africa to digitize uh, most identities, and then all identities. And then you go to somewhere like uh, other countries, like let's say Central African Republic that are yet to do that. And then you have Nigeria that's been in the process of doing that for since 2015 or 2016. It takes quite a while. Now, that's the first step, right? And then after that comes uh, land and such. But I'll just share a quick personal story. Um, we had land that uh, in my, my hometown in Owerri, Nigeria, that was just um, taken from us. Our next door neighbor just fenced it in. And was like, this one's mine now. <laughs> and so we went to the, uh, the land registry to figure out you know, where our, our documents were. And they were gone because you're dealing, you know, everything is in paper and such. So we kept on going back and do you know how we ended up getting the land back on the way out one day? We saw a secretary, well, one of the assistants there who was from our village and recognized, recognized my father's last name. And it turns out she was the one who was tasked with changing the documents. But she was like, oh, I had no idea it was you. Like, and that's just, just a small window into how if you don't have digitization uh, ownership of data, You talk to any African family, they'll spend the whole night arguing over who owns what land, (laughs) you know (laughs) what I mean? So uh, solving identity issues and and ownership, digital ownership is a, well, I believe will be a boon for the African community. This is an interesting example you bring up because it's
3: actually one that um, that's kind of like my pet example that I use about blockchain stuff, um, you know, about like land registries and just property in general. Um, I think one of the things that I, I hope and I, I believe that the ecosystem is sort of maybe realizing, and I say things meanly on Twitter sometimes about NFTs, but that I, I don't think like every everything is a nail for an NFT to hit. One of the interesting things about land in particular is like you kind of break people down. You kind of ask them like, okay, well, you know, you want to make a new system for land regimes. It's principally an identity system, right? Any construct is really rooted in the real world, and if something isn't acknowledged by whoever is enforcing the construct. It doesn't matter if it's on a blockchain or like, you know, the US government could be like, oh, the blockchain says, and they'd be like, oh, I don't, I don't really care what it says personally. Um, so, uh, so I, I always kind of ask people, you know, I drill through like, okay, well, let's just say we wanted to do it on a blockchain versus not, like, what does it look like? And, you know, say so had one, two, three main street in that town you were talking about, and it was a token, right? Well, the first thing you run into is like, well, who designates that that token is, is stands for that land, right? So then you kind of, you're immediately tasked with like, oh, I guess some, doesn't have to be government, you know, for all the people out there like me who are libertarians, maybe it's a governance organization or an HOA or something. Someone's got to view the representation, whatever it is, as, you know, as the thing that stands for the land. And then it's kind of like interesting as if it's a bearer token and someone just steals it and everyone is encoding law to enforce bearer proof versus preponderance of reputation. Then, you know, as soon as you get, your, it's like if someone stole your keys to your house and then they could. Just show up with the keys and say, well, I've got the keys. So I own your house. Oh, yeah. And you'd be like, no, bro, sorry. Like, I know that's a good try, but you know, I'm going to go to all the, the trust that I've accrued in the relationships to buy the house and own it over these years. And I'm going to point back to that and have some arbiter kind of decide. And so it kind of gets back to like, I don't think tokens are going to be what like 90% of these things are actually you know, are the representation of. I think it's more DIDs and verifiable credentials so that when I buy a piece of land or register it, I'm getting this credential that might be signed by the, the governance body in the area, the title company, the bank that I got a loan from, right? Like, And now I have proof to show that's independently verifiable that I can keep. I don't just have to go to some registry and I could go show someone and say, look at all these people who have signed this proof. Surely it's me who owns this land, you know?
0: I love the examples. And I think that what you're demonstrating is somebody who spent time in India. And let me tell you, any registry is like, it's kind of like Wikipedia, like it might say something right now, but give me 15 minutes and magic fingers, you know, and it might say something very different, right? What I think that this is demonstrating is again, like what is becoming possible through these new models is that you can create that network and web and put it to work digitally for you, right? Like you can have that verification that comes from a variety of different actors in the ecosystem around you that can demonstrate and prove, yes, that is owned by you or that you are that person or, you know, what, or that is your child or whatever it is that is really important. I want to go back for a bit to the refugee camp example, because I think there is a common misunderstanding. People think of refugee, uh, these camps as way stations, like you kind of go there for six months and then, oh, you spit it. No, I mean, lives are lived in these camps, right? And so to your point, Dan, I think the idea that you are simply incapable, it's not unlike prison. You're simply incapable of creating anything you can take with you, any skills or anything else. Uh, the same is frankly true, that kind of um, optionality among there's freelance work issues where it's really hard to verify. Like you anger one client, it's maybe the bulk of your work and next thing you know, you don't have any proof that you ever did it, right? Or um, even just regular wage earners, right? The grocery store clerks and these kinds of folks who, who are transit or whatever it is, who don't necessarily have a system that can demonstrate, but they do have happy customers, happy managers, happy, whatever it is, that are more than willing to verify and vouch for them, but the systems don't really exist to do that. So when we think of reputation, we think a lot about, we assume white-collar work, we assume educational pedigree of some kind, we assume, you know, a a known name, you know, we assume these kinds of status sorts of things that are extraordinarily hard to attain if you are not born with them, essentially, right, or born into an environment that uh, prioritizes the achievement of these things. And my hope is that as we build more open systems for everybody, this other reputational uh, force is going to prove to be more powerful. And it's going to enable not reliance on centralized institutions, whether governments or other, you know, whatever, right? Whatever it might be, it's going to enable people to draw strength from the community that they have built without even necessarily doing that on purpose, right? And realizing that. So you can have more examples you know, the, the clerk who's going to say, I know, I know you, I know your family. I know, you know, who you are. I've seen what you do, you know, whoever can hold your keys, but that is your home. You are part of this community and we claim you, we claim you. And we also identify you as being somebody who, you know, um, is what is, who you say you are. and can do the things you say you can do. So.
4: Sorry. I want to add one quick thing. You were stating the barriers, but even literacy is one, because we had that moment in our pilot. For me, it was a real come to Jesus moment or whatever you want to call it, because you assume education, you assume literacy. And I remember going to my dad and I was like blown away. I was telling him about this and he goes, you know, your grandfather was illiterate. My grandfather was a mayor of the largest city in Nigeria when it started. You know, he was a very successful businessman, yeah. right? Everyone knew his name, right? And so it, it he had reputation, right? And so Think that I like what you said about we claim this person, because that's really what it comes down to. And one of the things that we're trying to do through Mara, through Academy, is educate as many people at every strata society. Cause I think one of the keys to having verification through either a governance actor or through the government is you gotta you have to cross that educational barrier. Because once people understand that those tools are there. Then it makes it easier for Block to innovate. It makes it easier for them to innovate as well, because then you're not speaking French to them anymore. You know, they're like, "Oh, like, like, I just wanted, yeah." That example you you were showing about, you know, it's not necessarily NFTs. It's verified uh, reputation. It's just a function of getting that knowledge to most people.
3: Yeah, one one thing I do want to know, because you know, there are difficulties down in less advanced economies, but even even in really advanced economies, we still see it's latent. You kind of just think that's the way the world works, but like gig economy is a huge one, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you accrue reputation for Uber and Uber is not incentivized to allow you to carry your 5.0 you know, status to another network. So you are not the, the owner of the reputation that is sort of the backbone of your livelihood. And that happens here, right here in San Francisco and everywhere around the United States as well. So, so these systems, it's, it's kind of interesting that identity is the through line that crosses all educational and economic boundaries and touches everyone, and there's disparate impacts in every niche of every society, regardless of whether it's advanced or not.
2: So now I'm thinking about leapfrogging, right? Because we often talk about this developing world, and particularly in Africa, right? Like you know, when the, the arrival of, mo- of the mobile phone meant that they didn't actually have to put all the telephone lines down they could leap lead to mobile. Cell phones became ubiquitous without having to do that. In a way, it might be interesting to think about this particular challenge. In developed countries now, there is this dependency on these platforms that become the arbiter of your reputation. As you say, you can't take it anywhere. But we're talking here about these alternative forms of trust, of reputation being developed through offline analog environments, the introduction of NGOs and the like as certifying uh, authorities in these things. It's a different model that in some respect, is going to be more privacy preserving, one would think, right? Because it's not being uploaded into this massive, all consuming platform. And, you know, I, I just I'd just be interested to see whether, you know, as you go through this process of looking at what the is, is happened in the West and this big conversation we're having here about like, you know, the future of the internet and can we get to the world that Dan and others are working on where we control our data. Do you ever see an opportunity, Chi, in this unique setting that you have to actually build something fresh and, uh, and, and radically free, if you like, of, of the constraints of these platform-based models that we currently have here. Definitely. You know, they say innovation happens at the edges,
4: right? I mean, that's one of the reasons why I went out to the Delta, because I was like, well, there's a community that I can go in because of reputation, but it's like Greenfield. There are countries that don't have widespread identity, centralized identity systems. There are countries that are at that point of innovation where they can embrace uh, an entirely new model. And uh, I believe that we are in that moment because of the uh, the democratization of information. So many times you have these leaders of these countries that are amenable to understanding, okay, let's try something new because they do see it as a leapfrog opportunity. So we do spend quite a bit of time thinking about that through our foundation arm specifically, because you're going to countries that don't even have the infrastructure for you to roll out your product. They, you know, they might not have the payment rails, they might not have identity systems. And so that's where that thinking that innovation goes and said, okay, well, what if you were able to introduce an identity system, but you were able to do, introduce a scale, from pilot to scale, because you're speaking directly with the government. And you're saying, well, instead of doing a widespread um, centralized drive, which can be very, very challenging human resources-wise, human capital-wise for these governments. Let's try a different system. And those opportunities do lie uh, on the continent. And again, you know, it's happening at the edges in some of the smaller countries. They're still aware of what's happening in the world, you know, but they're looking to catch up and join everybody else.
2: So, it's that like, you, you do need though, a certain degree of in, enlightened perspective from those officials if you're going to go at it from the government side, right? The other one is to build a system that doesn't need government uh, engagement that nonetheless requires this trust and this, these systems of identity because well, otherwise we can't transact, right? But at the end of the day, like we, we've been reminded here uh, of late, the power of, of government. Uh, the Tornado Cash case has just, you know, just basically ripped through the crypto community, and it's it's just been a a big wake up call about how uh, powerful, in fact, you know, these systems are, and that you know, in some respects, it, Tornado Cash' decision to 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 put set aside whether or not it should be, you know, a piece of software should be placed on on a sanctioned list or not, it is a reinforcing a revalidation, if you like, of the importance to the powers that be of the Pre-existing KYC identity-based model, and if it it's the absence of that that forced them to take this, that felt like they had to force them to take this move. So, I mean, I find it a little depressing, (laughs) but I, I wonder, you know, Dan. First of all, do we have to reform them and get them to shift their mindset, or is there a hack around this that actually gets us to a happy space of requiring, you know, maybe the leapfrogging stuff we were just talking about, right? or are we just at the end of the day not going to get anywhere unless government comes along and and starts thinking about it and if so are there folks out there who are being a little bit more imaginative about you know dids and and you know zero knowledge proofs and a whole host of other technologies that allow for these proofs to exist without the same heavy burden of controlled information
3: i think it's a mixture i think there are things that man it, you know i don't like to say dystopia but uh, you know we, we have a choice. I think we have a set of choices to make as a society uh, as to whether we want to kind of double down on some potentially uh, privacy invading and um, maybe not really even effective means of doing these things or, or innovate. And I think that in some of the cases, the government has to come along. If they don't, they will force kind of the next generation of current systems. I can imagine an SDN list uh, having a did on it you know, at some point where someone becomes persona non grata with their, you know, highly public social did that they use for, you know, public interactions. And now you can't talk to that. And if you had some sort of signed transmission that had, you know, co-signed by that person, you're in trouble. I mean, I, I don't want to see a world like that, right? Um, I do think that if, if there is participation and understanding by these government agencies that we can do it a better way, like, you know, we can use zero launch proofs. We can reuse certain proofs across institutions and trust the process that's happened and not kind of regurgitate our information into these silos. Unfortunately, there is legislation that needs to occur, at least in the United States. Other countries, you know, there's a variety of things, but we can only do so much based on the barriers of legislation that exist now. So uh, I do think it's going to require them stepping in. But yeah, I mean, it, it's there. It's there for them. It's possible to do. It just, it requires a, a partnership to do it. You
0: know, I owe every time anything about... SDN list comes up, I feel like I have to kind of hearken uh, back to the days post-Patriot Act and post 9-11, right, as a member of the South Asian community and seeing the tremendous overreach. I mean, God forbid you had a certain name at that time. And even to this day, because No Fly was hardly, you know, <laughs> it was not that hard to get on if you were a brown person with a certain kind of name, right, let alone a certain original passport or whatnot. And that overreach was tremendously problematic at the same time. I think uh, the argument in, in, in favor of those kinds of things is always, National security. And it's, it's very, very tough when you pit anything against national security, even civil liberties. As it turns out, here in the United States, we have kind of decided what that trade off is going to be and going to look like. And that is pretty consistent administration to administration. It's pretty consistent issue to issue. Um, and it is, it is, it's not that those concerns are not very real. I and mean, I do want to, I don't want to in any way dismiss the importance of obviously national security. Nevertheless, what I like about the idea of a reputational web, just kind of framing how I, how I visualize this in my brain, right? This kind of idea, you could claim someone through a powerful network of credentialing that they've built their entire lives without even realizing they're doing that, is the problem with those lists wasn't even so much getting on it. It's how impossible it was to get off. Impossible, right? Because I think that even my community would have been less, name the emotion, distressed, angry, perturbed, you know, horrified, et cetera by the overreach and over-inclusion of those lists, if there had been a path to getting off the list by being like, I am not the droid you're seeking, right? Like I am a very different person and I can prove that. But that wasn't prioritized in part because it was so hard to do. And so I think we have to also think about it in the negative, right? Like if you are misidentified, this is an opportunity to also demonstrate your linear credentialing may have misidentified me as X. I'm actually X prime, you know? You know, maybe it's the same. Some things are similar, but there are things that are different. And I can now prove those differences meaningfully in order to correct the misimpression that, you know, you, the linear central authority have about my identity. So I just want to put that in the negative a bit as well, because it's equally important to be able to prove who you are, be able to prove who you are not is also really important. And that's something I didn't, you know.
4: Sorry, just to build off what you're saying, what you had said, Daniel, in the wrong hands, you can use it as a tool to... Count, you know, smaller tribes in your community. That's unfortunate. I do think that
3: it's going to take a lot getting it right. I, so, you know, one thing I'll say is, a long time ago, when I first started working on this problem, way back in like 2011 at Mozilla, I had a buddy there who he got me into Bitcoin, and we kind of had this talk about it. And, and we were like, you know, should we even do this? Should we even put any effort into digital identity? Because, you know, both of us sat there, and this is you know a decade before it really even came to the fore it could be used to create dystopias. And, you know, how I kind of articulated it to my friend was, look, man, you know, we can either be a part of the solution or part of the problem. I, I don't think that, st- you know, in Star Trek, what is it, 2300 or something? I don't think like everything's digitized about the ship, but like, they're still handing out paper, <laughs> right? Like they probably are going to digital, whether you and I sitting at this desk are doing this or not. So, you know, if we don't put on a Jersey and step on the field, you know, it's going to get done. It's probably going to get done in way that's terrible. And so, for me, I made a choice at that point that I was going to try as best I could to make sure that it wasn't that way. And I think everyone needs to take that sort of mindset because it's going to happen. Everything in life will be digital, you know, in some respect. And we just get a choice about how we want that digital system to be constructed.
2: All right. I think we're going to wrap it up there. It's a great way to end it because uh, it's a great conversation. Look, this is, the, this is actually the project of all, right? We, I think the acknowledgement that the world's going digital, whether we like it or not, and I think the world's actually going decentralized as well. Like, I think that's actually the, the lesson of the, the web two era. In fact, is things like social media and that did create these decentralized power groups. And we've got to figure out how to govern them in a way that is not leading us to dystopia, that is empowering of people, but nonetheless is still building systems of trust so that we can actually transact and build, build relationships with each other. So it was a really nice way to round it off. Dan, thank you. And, and Chi, thank you for those fascinating insights about. You know, a part of the world that we frankly don't think about enough, or I certainly don't, you know, it's been great to locate a different way of of approaching things like trust and, and identity. And Sheila, as always, wonderful insights. Thank you so much.
1: From all of us here at Money Reimagined, we're wishing you a wonderful end of the year and a happy 2023. I'm Sheila Warren. Stay tuned for another episode next week.
0: You've been listening to a best of holiday edition of Money Reimagined. Today's episode has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Happy Holidays, Happy New Year, and thanks for listening.